I'm Laura Max Rose, mother of two, and you're listening to Look Ma No Hands, my candid dispatches from the front lines of motherhood. I ask the real, tough, honest questions on motherhood-related topics that we're all wanting to know more about, in hopes it will make everyone's journey fulfilling, easier, and more joyful. If you're not a mom, welcome. I want you to know how happy I am that you're listening and that these topics can be applied to any season of life. I'm grateful you're along for the ride. Welcome back to Look Mono Hands. I am your host, Laura Max Rose, and I am joined today by a very special guest, Megan Leahy. She is the on parenting columnist for the Washington Post and a certified parenting coach who lives in Washington, D.C., with her husband, three school age daughters, and her dog. She's appeared on NPR and ABC, as well as in numerous publications, and most recently, She wrote the book, Parenting Outside the Lines, which if you follow me on Instagram, you know that I saw this book in Barnes & Noble about a week ago, and it reminded me so much of my husband and the way he parents, just the title. It's Parenting Outside the Lines, and then Forget the Rules, Tap into Your Wisdom, and Connect with Your Child. Reminded me so much of the lessons that my husband has taught me on our parenting journey, and I thought, gosh, I really want to interview her. I like her style already, hadn't even read the book yet. And she said, yes. So this morning I read it. I have so many questions for you, Megan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. When I saw your Instagram message, I was like, oh, that's fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your book just like popped right out. I love it. It's bright turquoise if you haven't seen it on my Instagram yet. Um, And I just absolutely devoured every word. It was so validating, actually, for me. You have so many jokes in here about how your kid doesn't care about your organic salmon. Mm -hmm. And I laugh every time you say that, because this is something. Why is it that when we go into parenting, if we haven't had children yet or when we're pregnant, we sort of fantasize about all of the nutritious foods we're going to feed them? And the second we actually become parents, we realize how hard that actually is. And we beat ourselves up for not doing it. And you were just like, let it go. And I loved that. Yeah. And, you know, um, because nobody will say that nutritious foods aren't important, right? Like we know that a decent balanced diet is, is critical to growing a human. But what those foods often mask are a faulty set of expectations right. about what we're supposed to be doing and who we're doing it for. And, um, that's, it's, it's a control and power issue dressed up as good intentions, which oh, is, I love that. It, yes. well, it makes us feel like we have control, you know, to, in some, in some way. I mean, I notice when I've had the hardest day with my kids, that's mm-hmm. usually when I back up and I say, okay, we're going to have a new plan. You talk about new plans in your book. We're going to start eating really healthy starting tomorrow. We're doing stricter bedtimes. It's usually because I feel like I'm out of control. And you say every parent who's ever said that, which is pretty much every parent ever, always ultimately learns that they're not in control. Yeah. And we have this expectation that we're going to reverse course on something and it's going to work like the first time, like that there's going to be this um, change and the kids will be like, yeah, great idea. I don't miss the nuggets at all. Or... (laughs) Sure, you can take away my iPad. I didn't need it anyway. Like, there's going to be no backlash, no hardship, no anger. Um, 
and that those expectations and how we become so obsessed with them, they kill us. They kill us. They kill us. I love what you say about those meltdowns. You say that our kids are going to have reactions to us taking something away or saying no to them. You say that the tears that come after the boundary is held are the real tears. What does that mean? So we don't want our kids to cry. Like there's parenting books like Parenting Without Tears, which when I read that, I like, oh yeah. I think it's kind of old, but that's interesting. Yeah. You know, and I'm part of this. I'm part of the problem. Essentially people reach out to me because they want something to happen, but they don't want there to be any suffering. Mm, right. Exactly. And like life, life has a lot of suffering. Yes. And there's also like the big parenting trend in the last four years is resilience and grit. But in order to have resilience and grit, there has to be suffering. Right. And resilience and grit is probably a reaction to, to like this lawnmower. Is that what it's called? Lawnmower parenting, where we get rid of all the obstacles for our children? Right. Exactly. So the brain has to experience the frustration of not getting what you want and then coming through that emotionally and physically safe. Mm. So it's not just the rule, right? It's the rule plus the room to grow. So if I take away an iPad and the kid cries and I'm like, why are you crying? I told you I was taking it away. I'm sick of your crying, blah, 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 We made this rule. You agreed to it. What you've taken away, the upset. You've taken away the opportunity to become resilient, right? And replaced it with a fight. I read this meme, I think. It was a, from a parenting coach on Instagram several months ago, and it just totally blew my mind. It was saying that when you have a new baby and the baby wakes up in the middle of the night and starts crying and they don't need any food and that they don't need their diaper changed and they're just upset that sometimes you're going to be holding them and they're going to be crying and that that's okay. That the goal isn't necessarily to stop the crying, that if you're rocking them and comforting them, they just need to cry and it, you're there and you're showing them comfort. You're not letting them scream by themselves in their crib, but they have a safe place to be sad. We're all sad. And when I read that, I thought, gosh, you know, when I'm sad, when I want something or when something's going wrong for me, I just often want a safe place to feel that way. And then it's over. But when we look at our children, usually we interpret their fussiness or their cries or their tears because those tears are inherently irritating to us that they're doing something wrong or that we haven't done something right. But that's just a normal part of the process. Right. And if we're not aware of our own triggers of our own, although triggers now is like that word is now triggering people. <laughs> um, if we're not You're still right. I mean, <laughs> I know it's we, been like totally when I hear it, I just think of like a 19 year old in college in a safe space. And, I'm and like, meanwhile, like it really did start as, as like a PTSD. Um, yeah, it was real military. I have like, real triggers, but trauma, now I hear it and right. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, my, my older child once, we said time for soup and salad, and she went on Instagram and, and t- said how triggered she was by hearing those words. <laughs> I, I, like, peed myself laughing. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, um, it's definitely been overdone. Go ahead. If we don't catch these little hooks, 
into like whatever they mean to us, right? So when our kid is upset and we don't understand what that means to us, then mm. we just stay in this cycle of, of whack-a-mole parenting. And so when you say what that means to us, what do you mean? You mean looking at why it's upsetting for us, why it's so triggering for us, looking at why it's so bothersome that your kid doesn't like their breakfast and doesn't want to eat it. Right. Like for in the book, you know, why aren't my kids grateful? So for a lot mm. of parents, lack of gratitude means something. It's a huge tr- trigger. You taught, you said there's a line that's actually highlighted in your book that says your kids don't owe you anything. You Ooh. made it bold and really big. And I love that. And that chaps people's ass so bad. Oh, they get mad. Like, are you kidding me? When I was little, you know, if I right. ever didn't say thank you to my right. dad, he would have sma- sla- slapped me. Totally. totally. How'd that make you feel? Yeah. I, you know, and when I experience my own children's lack of gratitude, I go into two kind of places. It's either, and both kind of in fear, but um, who do you think you are? Or Mm -hmm. they're going to grow up to be monster people, right? That's where I go. I go to the, you're not, you're going to be an ingrate and you're not going to appreciate, you're going to be a brat. And so the majority of people that hire me are in our future diagnosing, just like you. Mm. Right. Um, and of course, of course they are. There's nothing wrong with them. Like we're handed these useless blobs of humans and take care of them 24 seven. Of course, we're, we're going to be futurally worried. Um, like biologically we're mammals. So we're so hooked into them. And then we have these awful brains that just screw us over 24-7. So I don't blame parents, right? And um, the larger culture doesn't really support a lot of humanity toward children. We adore them. We're obsessed with them. We do so much crap for them. But we still want them to be seen and not heard, as they used to say in the 50s. Yeah, that's still our entire. I mean, I think about taking my kid into a restaurant, and it's one of the hardest things for me to sort of navigate, not bothering everybody with their volume, and yeah. also treating them humanely because they're children and they can't be that quiet. So, choosing the restaurant wisely. There's all these things that I can do as a parent, but our society in general doesn't really support parents in that endeavor, and they don't really support kids being kids. We expect them to act much older than they actually are. What do you say to a parent when they come to you and they say, listen, I give my kid her dinner and she yells that she doesn't want it. And I'm terrified that she's just going to be ungrateful. So I tell her she has to say thank you. What do you say to that parent to calm their their concern that that child is going to somehow become an ungrateful child if they're not forced to say thank you or to eat their food? Yeah, you know... It's interesting. It's different for every parent. So there's like, when I'm coaching parents, there's listening, and then I'm doing all the other listening. Right? Mm -hmm. So they're telling me what the problem is, but then I'm also hearing what the real problem is. I love it. Um, So with almost every parent, I normalize 
so we just go straight for the developmental norms of the age, right? Because I, I, I don't know why parents are not supported more with understanding their child developmentally, but essentially we are like obsessed with getting pregnant, pregnancy, and then the first couple of months, and then it's like, poof. We don't think anymore about where our kid is supposed to be developmentally after we've, you know, taken extensive notes that they're the size of a cauliflower in our right. stomach and the size of a broccoli. We, we, we drop that after, and they're just supposed to be wherever their friend is. I know that definitely happened for me. We had a friend with a child who was two months older than my daughter, which when you're a new baby is a very significant age gap. And me just kind of always looking to that child who continues to be very developmentally advanced and drawing these comparisons and getting concerned. Parents really don't have any baseline. We don't learn parenting anywhere. It's very interesting. I picked up this book because I knew I was going to interview you, but it wasn't at a time where I felt desperate for some kind of guidance around my own parenting, which there have been many of those times. And I said to my husband, after I started reading it, I said, you know, this has been such an awesome experience because I wasn't really tempted to go out and buy a parenting book to solve a problem. I'm reading it when my tank is pretty full. Like I actually feel pretty good right now about my parenting and I'm reading this book and it's kind of like putting money in the bank because I'm getting all this information. Yeah. When I'm like of sound mind and I'm actually absorbing it a lot more than I absorb things when I'm panicked and just need a solution right now. But we don't think about it that way. It's not something we read about before we have kids. Or if we do, we just have no real context for what parenting is actually going to be like. It's not something that we focus on very much. I know. And just by discussing, because I work from an attachment development theory, which is an integrated theory using attachment theory and developmental theory. It's not attachment parenting. I don't have anything (laughs) against it. It's just a whole different thing. And so what we outline is, what are what is typical for the age and then how does that look for your child right? right and so if your child is sensitive gifted have this executive functioning issues uh extroverted uh i mean any kind of characteristic that affects their maturity Right, right. Period. All of it, all of it right. is a factor. Like we're not all the same. So you have a loose framework of what happens with kids that aren't interested with dinner. And then we go into which parents don't understand that um, before like six, and I mean, maturity is never guaranteed. Uh, you can look out into the world right now and see adults that haven't matured. Um, everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Um, maturity is not a guarantee. Maturity is not a guarantee. And so before the age of six, being a narcissist or having narcissistic behaviors is the typical development of a child. It is not a diagnosis and it is not something to be corrected with punitive, harsh measures. It is what is developmentally required for that child to individuate. Mm, so, so, so how it, do we ultimately teach if that's normal, right? Yeah. How do we ultimately foster a sense of gratitude? Is that something we don't really think about until a child reaches a certain age? So if you really look at it, um, gratitude is the ability to 
take a larger perspective and appreciate it for maybe something that isn't immediately obvious. It's very advanced. Hell yeah. 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 It's really advanced too when you have gratitude, when it seems like you might not want, like, like you shouldn't. Like for instance, like it's hard times in America right now. So I have to cultivate gratitude for my clean air. It's a constant practice. That's right. An immature person just sees what's in front of them and it's either good or it's not. Right. Which makes sense because children are by nature immature. That's right. So, you know, and we still do it in our culture and I, I do understand it because it's from a behavioral model and I do believe in behaviorism. It's super powerful and we are animals but like you, nobody teaches gratitude. Like nobody came to you and said, you're not grateful yet. Here's the lesson. Right. And you didn't walk away like, now I'm grateful. Um, it emerges in a child, both spontaneously and untaught, yet it must be fostered. I think that lets parents off the hook in such a profound, wonderful way because we don't have to worry anymore about being the teachers or you better not talk to me like that ever again, or I'm the boss. You mentioned in your book that when parents talk that way to their children, it actually only instills a sense of fear and that if children do react well, what or seemingly well to that, if they finally do say thank you or they don't talk back to you, it's all really from a sense of fear. They're just learning this sort of code. It's not a genuine sense of, of thankfulness or, or a change of heart. I think a lot of the things in your book really let parents off the hook in the best way from that lesson to the organic salmon. You also say that there's, you mention all the articles that are out there, all the studies that we didn't used to have access to. Now I feel like I sign on Facebook. I look at my homepage. There's about five different articles from Inc. Magazine and what have you saying, you know, the 12 things parents who raise kind children do. And there's Mm -hmm. always just more information. And you say in the very beginning of your book that what you started to realize from coaching parents was that these studies weren't actually helping them at all. In some ways, they were actually defeating. What do you, how did, how did you figure that out? And what does that look like? Humans are relational. We Mm -hmm. have from, for time eternal, taken our cues and our lessons from our people, parents, aunties, uncles, wise people, neighbors, right? Um, Right. That's what we did. And we also were supported in a way, both good and bad, that here's the way you do it. Um, And that was that. And so I'm not always saying that was good or right. I'm just saying we only had, we had a very limited amount of information. That's right. Now we have so much. And it was clear. It was clear. Every day there's a contradicting study. Every day. You talk about all the different types of parenting, free range, helicopter, tech free, family bed sharing. And that that wasn't the case until recently, but we kind of operate as though this has been around for a really long time. And like, it's something that we all need to attain, but we don't realize that it's actually a relatively novel concept to have all these different brands of parenting that we need to choose from. Yeah. And America is its own sticky wicket because we don't have hundreds or thousands of years of doing it one way. Everybody here has brought an ancestry 
that is unlike everybody else's. Even if you lived next to an, another, I'm Irish, if I lived next to another Irish American, we have a different ancestry. Right. right. You have different ways of doing things. That's Everyone, right. I have friends who are Italian and they'll like say, well, we're Italian. This is how we do things. And it's like, we all, we all have different ways of doing things based off of our roots. And we all came here relatively recently. So that right. makes a lot of sense. And so when we look around, we're just like, well, what am I supposed to be doing? Who's right. supposed to help me? Because we don't know what we're doing and nor actually should we, like, how are we supposed nor to Nor should we. Yeah. Right. We're all kind of in this together and learning. We have this sort of obsession, I feel. I mean, you're a parenting coach, so you must be aware of this with getting parenting right. But that, I don't feel like that was shared by previous generations nearly to the extent that it, it exists today. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. I mean, when I what started do you think's my job, that? My, I mean, even my parents were like, what the hell kind of job is that? You know, um, <laughs> like you have a counseling degree from Hopkins and you're doing a what? What? You know? Um, You're coaching parents. What do I account for that? Um, the internet, um, mm. the suburbs. <laughs> Probably an inherent sense of self-doubt as a result of maybe both of those things. You know, do you the, think it has anything to do with how we were all raised? Do you think that there's yeah. this sort of collective, yeah, I Hey, do. I want to do it differently. Yeah, I do. Um, and you know, it's a funny thing because with every cultural movement, there are ramifications, both good and bad. Women moving out of the home and only being able to be pregnant and make pot roast or whatever has ramifications that are both powerfully good and also transitionally hard for families. It's not a, wow. a statement of value of should we move backward? It's that we are still in the midst. If you think about how long women have been forced to be pregnant and stay home, how short of amount of time it is in humanity that that has changed, we are still very much in the midst of that transition with our children. Yeah, I mean, we're still figuring out what that looks like. I think about that in terms of marriages and partnerships as well. Look we at now how have our government has not caught up. Our, oh, not at all. I mean, leave. there's no support for women who have children. Protections um, for pregnancy, protections. I mean, when I had my first baby 16 years ago, you know, I was told to go to a bathroom stall to breastfeed. I mean, they saw all <laughs> kinds much of gestures day. from me. Of yeah. course, I wouldn't. I like sat right on a bench and whipped out both my boobs, like have a, have a yeah. peek. Love it. You're so modern back then. That was very progressive. It was 17 years ago almost. Um, But that's insane. That's insane. Right? Yeah, it's unreal. And also I think about this sort of egalitarian mindset that we have, like where men and women now are responsible for doing the same amount of work, but no one really knows what that looks like. And it's created so many... I think unmet expectations, probably comparing ourselves to other people, um, not really knowing we have no real reference for what that looks like. I think that's an amazing progression in our society that men and women are just as are equally involved with their children, but we don't know, we don't have any frame of reference for that because this is kind of the first generation. And we that's also attempted. know that we're not, we know right. we're not equal. 
We're not. Women are doing everything. The pandemic has revealed the cracks. It has revealed the very thin web that was holding our lives together before. And I, you know, if I weren't so lazy, I would really do studies, not right now, but on like the next five to 10 years on the mental health ramifications of this pandemic, both good and bad, um, for how it has laid us low. You know, because yeah, I mean, it absolutely has exposed. Right. Women were hustling and we were living like we weren't raising kids, getting on calls, putting the makeup on in the car, doing this, running there, doing like, and everywhere we were, we were just that. Right. I'm, I'm working, I'm mothering, I'm blah, blah. And now it has all been stripped away. Like, Everything is out in the open. The supports are gone. You know, you're breastfeeding while you're on Zoom with your VP. It's like, it's so, in in a way, awful and so good. Because we can't well, we realized how it's so un- It was so unsustainable what we were doing. I mean, and nothing has driven that home besides like one thing falls out of the equation. We don't have childcare and it's like this big explosion. I mean- It's, yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the main person leaving the house or cave or however you want to see it, like how long women have been the primary rearers of children, and you take that away, and you take away community, and you insert technology, what you have is isolation. And in isolation is where we begin to listen to and belong to our fears because the deepest human need is to belong, is to connect, is to feel seen. And so when we don't have that as parents, we turn to crazy stuff and Mm. we start trying strategies that don't make sense. We don't listen to our own instincts. We, you know, just, we're like a fart in the wind. Well, we also lose perspective that these aren't normal times and that our children, I know about, I mean, my children, my friend's children are reacting to this situation, whether they're old enough to really understand the coronavirus or not, they're reacting to a complete change in their lives and their behavior isn't the way that it usually is. And it starts to get very challenging to remind yourself that that is really par for the course, that these aren't normal times, that it's going to be okay. We start to kind of strategize and plot how we're going to fix those behaviors without realizing, wait a second, my kid is completely exhausted. She misses her friend. She's lonely. That's why she's acting out in this way. Yeah. And... (sighs) When, especially for very young children, routine is safety. It's everything. It's everything. If it's a positive routine. <laughs> if it's a garbage routine. If it's routine, a positive routine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if I saw routine, that also impacts them in awful ways. But a, a, a slight interruption in routine, depending on the child's temperament, can have serious ramifications. Right. And people will be like, I don't know what's wrong with her. God, she's just being three. Or, but somehow it's something's wrong with the kid. 
something's wrong with the kid. Whereas we're, you know, our society, I think 50% of Americans are reporting being depressed right now. I mean, adults aren't handling this any better. I mean, we're all struggling with what's going on. So it makes complete sense that our children would be too. Right. Like, and I'm sorry, your three-year-old can't grab the box wine and put on housewives for six hours, but like, they can't can't space out. (laughs) They're actually cooking better than we are. I know they really are. I mean, when you think about it, they really are. You give this uh, hilarious rendition of a moment in the grocery store with your child in which she's about two years old Mm -hmm. and you're just going to run into the grocery store for a really quick trip. I feel like every mom has been in this situation and you end up taking the time to buy, you know, like $300 worth of groceries that you need. And of course your kid is absolutely miserable. So you have like this totally chaotic experience and you finally realize that you just need to walk away and you leave your cart full of groceries in the middle of the store and get your kid the hell out of there. And in the book, you go over your thought process. You were a somewhat new parent at the time and you still perceived yourself to be very controlling. And you said that if somebody had asked you if you cared that your daughter was miserable while you shopped for yogurt, you would have told them, yeah, of course I care about the fact that she's miserable. But what you didn't realize was that deep down your mind was kind of telling you that if you give this child an inch, she's going to take a mile. And I think that very thought has motivated so many of my irrational parenting moves. Like if I give her just this little tiny bit of grace, she's just going to think that my entire world revolves around her. And, and I can look back on my child's much younger, younger years and remember doing things like that. Maybe when she was a baby, you know, she clearly didn't want to nap and if I would let her out of her room earlier than nap time ended per whatever sleep training book I was reading at the time, I just felt like she was going to take a mile. It's like babies can't even comprehend that. Yeah. They and- can't. I mean, and we still we still make so many decisions ba- from this place of if I let my kid get away with this, they're going to just think that this is okay. And I think that really ties into what's going on right now. I know for me, when this pandemic started, And my oldest daughter was starting to act out. She was getting a little more aggressive with her sister. I was like, wait, we can't let this be the norm. She really needs to know. I mean, she really needs to be put in her place. That part of my brain was really going crazy. I can imagine that a lot of your clients or parents that you talk to have maybe relayed something similar. Yeah. And, you know, the the book kind of like in that chapter, it is. I really wanted to address the paradoxical nature of parents. On one hand, Mm -hmm. if you are a slave to, I said I was going to do this and we're going to do this because, you know, if I give her an inch, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So this whole like rigid way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side is, I'm just going to follow all of their cues. I'm right. That doesn't work very well either. Going yeah. to just be my here. rigidity, I feel like at the beginning of my child's life were my rigidity at the beginning of my oldest daughter's life was definitely a reaction to what was more popular, I think, even four years ago, which was like attachment parenting, never let your baby cry. Your entire life should revolve around their every need. And I was just like, I can't do this. I and can't. so the paradox of parenting is that it's both. Right. It's It's both. both. It is both. If you adopt a theory or parenting trend that has you doing one or the other, I just want to scream this, but I won't. It is you are doing a disservice to your family. Hmm. There is no human 
that is attended to and allowed every whim that grows up to be a person who can make mature decisions. And there's no human that needs rigidity to, that, to grow up and become a human that can make good decisions. I love that you say both of those things in your book, because you even say in your book that it's rare to find a book that will say both of those things. Books usually fall on one side of the aisle or the other. You're either in one parenting group where kids leading the way all the time, or you're a really rigid parent, but that the truth is really in the middle. And intuitively, you say, we know that. You posted on Facebook yesterday, you had your book next to the book about raising your children the Danish way. And you said, I don't want your chi- I don't want you to raise your children the Danish way. I want you to raise them your way. And that we all know inherently what works for us and what really works for our children. And when we don't know, that is data. Mm. Right? So, because parents call me because they want a way. They want right. a way. And ironically, I'm like, I'm not going to give you a way. <laughs> and they're like, I don't, uh, I don't have the way. I want my money back. I'm like, no, but here's what we're going to do. Like, here's a little bit of science. Here's a little bit of neuro. Here's a little bit of woo woo shit. Here's a little bit of this. Right. And we're going to uncover what you need right now with the, with the knowledge that it will change as long as connection is at the basement level, the, 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 the roots, the bottom, the foundation of everything. You say that connection is the most important thing throughout your book. Yeah. You know, I often use the example when I'm coaching that like, I just met you and you're a nice person, right? And let's say you lived around the block and I just met you. And then you call me like, I need a ride to BWI, which is an airport that is a pain in the ass to get to him far away. <laughs> right. I might be like, okay, well, uh, I'll call you an Uber. Right. Right. The next day, my best friend up the street calls me now. And I probably would do it because whatever, but I would be like, who she thinks she is. Okay. If the next day my best friend calls me, Megan, Oh my God, I need to go to BWI. I'm changing my appointments and I'm taking her. It's not the request. It's the relationship. Oh, I love that. It's never really the request. It's how we feel about the other person and how we feel they feel about us. So true. I'm just taking that in over here. Right. So That's when, so true. And we foster that connection with our children. They're way more likely to give us all those things that kind, to cooperate. Have yeah. gratitude. Eat your crappy dinner. Do the homework do the chore, right? So people hire me because they want to do like chore charts and marble jars and pay them and do this. And I'm like, do you have fun with your kid? Okay. So I have a client right now who's amazing because she's doing all our homework and most parents don't Um, because we're lazy. We're not lazy. We just, we're afraid. I get it. And she's doing all our homework and her kids are older, like 11 and 13 and they don't do any chores. And so her first homework was she had to have fun with them. Just pure fun. And then the next homework was they got to pick their own chores and she did the chores with them. Like an internship. I love it. Right. So I was very specific. Teach them how to do the chore. Teach them your way. Let them figure out their way. Be with them. 
tell And they probably stories. really enjoy that because that's time spent with her. Yeah. And she's telling them stories about when she was growing up, about her chores. And then she praises them, even a bad attempt. And she's like, Megan, I can't believe it. It's working. You're a magician. I'm like, no, I'm not. You are pulling on the most powerful string that has ever been created in nature, which is connection. That's all so beautiful. you're doing. It's not rocket science, but we want to skip over it because we cannot believe that something so simple can be so profound. Well, I mean, think about how it feels to live with somebody who's nagging you all the time. It's not yeah, fun. Me. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I like, I, I think about <laughs> my husband when we're at our house, for some reason, cleanliness is not like the most important thing to him. But whenever we travel he becomes like the neatest person. And I don't care about the hotel room. I care about my actual house. So he gets really nitpicky about stuff being clean or the bed being made. And I'm like, oh my God, leave me alone. And then I think, oh, when we're at home, I'm doing this to you all day long. <laughs> Nobody likes, like, it's no fun. It's not, it's not fun. Not and, and actually, no fun. Um, what you get from your kids is uh, they do the opposite. Oh yeah. They can't stand it. And they just totally rebel. Right. And it's really hard because you're, you're connecting your hiney off and parents are doing that and they're going Megan, Megan, Megan. And that is where boundaries and consequences and punishments take place. You know, Mm -hmm. my 13 year old lied to me last night and kept her phone in her room. I know she was lying to me. I made her hand it over and it's gone. I took it. I don't know when she'll get it back. I haven't decided. Right. Like, I, I, do we have a great connection? Yes, we do. Yeah. And she can also probably trust you to keep your word. Yes. And, and I, to, I'm not going to like perceive our relationship is now broken, but it's both. Right. So now we have to walk today and be like, and I have to be like, Hey, listen, you can't lie to me. B, you know, the tech rule, but also she's 13. This is her job. This is her job. There's such a safety in that, just having a parent who can tell you the rules calmly, enforce them, not overreact, be a mature adult. I remember I didn't have, it was very easy for me to get around the rules. There weren't a lot of, I mean, we didn't have as much technology. Facebook became a thing when I was like 16 years old, didn't have a smartphone until I was in college, but I had my cell phone. There were boundaries, but they were never really enforced. And I remember my friends, most of them had much stricter rules than I did. And I remember how jealous I felt because I think rules are love to children, to any person who still lives with you. That's your spawn. (laughs) So 18 and under. I think that that's how children feel loved. And I remember that every time I enforce a boundary with my child that this is like, this is my job. Yes. I am supposed to protect you. So even if you scream at me, I'm not going to scream at you. I'm going to let you have your feelings about it. Right. But I am still going to stand here and I'm still going to do what I said I was going to do. Right. And when we scream back, not if, when, right. Um, that's the humanity of humans. Oh, we all do humans, it. And yeah, you can role model an apology which, you know, I, I really wanted to write about the importance of the apology in my book because it is, for me, 
one of the most powerful resets he can have. Um, I love, we teach our children how to apologize. You say that you're, you felt like you were one of the lucky ones because after you had knocked down drag out fights as a teenager with your own mother, she always came into your room and apologized for her part that she never blamed it on you. Even though you say there were millions of things that you did wrong. She only took responsibility for what she did. And that you say that there were a lot of, you know, a lot of parents who never apologize and there are also parents who apologize too often. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I am not that parent, but I coach parents who just apologize for being alive. It's mostly women. It's sometimes men. But whatever their, whatever their childhoods were, they have a need to just the shame just comes up so quickly Mm -hmm. and they are, you know, they're so sorry. They yelled, they can't believe it. They, they keep apologizing. They're making amends They they do everything right, but it goes so far that it actually becomes confusing to the kid. Because it doesn't match what actually happened. Right. And and actually, it, it weakens the parent's stance of power. Right. And they're kind of like needing something from their kid. Like, I need you to forgive me. It, that's the power differential. Right. right. I totally know how that feels being on the other side. I mean, I I was that. I, I had my daughter. <laughs> my daughter the other day said something she was expressing to me that she felt like I had been very mean to her that day. Mm-hmm. And I listened to her and this was the first time she had expressed it in such a direct way that was very challenging for me to hear. And I stood there and I listened and my husband was in the room and he was kind of having that moment where I'd been a little mean that day to everyone. And he was like, yeah, thanks. I'm really glad our four-year-olds could convince you that I was right the whole time that you were in a terrible mood today. So he was really enjoying this. Mm-hmm. And I was like listening and I said, you know, Selma, I'm so sorry. You're totally right. And I am so sorry I made you feel that way. I probably said something else. And then I left the room, like after I'd tucked her in and said goodnight, I walked out, I looked at Ben. I was like, do you understand that? I just want to ask her 550 times if like, it's really okay. And if she forgives me, like, it was like every impulse I had was just, I have to run back in there and make sure she understands how sorry I am. And like, I also need her to tell me that everything's okay. And like, I'm like, I can't, this is exactly what was done to me. And I just talked to my husband about it and went downstairs, but I could completely understand, you know, it's like overwhelming when you've been through that. I just couldn't, it was so hard for me and I did it, but it was so hard for me to get to this place where I was like, it's okay. It's okay that you yelled at her today and that you didn't have that great of a day. You don't yell at her all the time. I think a lot of parents who maybe when they were children were yelled at all the time, they hear something like that. They have that type of interchange with their kid where maybe they snap at their kid, which we all do. And they're just overwhelmed, like you said, with the shame of it. And I mean, that was certainly me that day. I couldn't, couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe she was telling me that I had shouted at her and she was upset and I hurt her feelings. And it was like, I got through it. But I mean, man, I get it. I totally get what you're saying. And, you know, for those of us who grew up shamed and smacked and right like old school way right yeah. um you know spanking 
and and threatening are amazing behavior modification tools. Uh, mm. They really work almost a hundred percent of the time. They also ruin a person. <laughs> They ruin a person. Thank you. I want you to go into that a little bit more because I have had friends who maybe, you know, were raised that way and have some convictions about the fact that, hey, I didn't, I didn't talk back to my mom and I always said please and thank you. So it worked. And I'm like, did it? So here's a funny thing. So one of the basic, most, most deep set impulses in humans is our alarm system right? Our parasympathetic, Mm -hmm. sympathetic nervous system, our alarm. We are not conscious of our alarm system. Um, We can become conscious of it, but by that time it's happening, it's already been happening. It's what I'm saying. It's so deep in the body. And Mm -hmm. we need to have it as infants to alert our caregivers to our chronic and constant needs, right? Mm -hmm. And we keep it for the rest of our lives, but hopefully it takes, you know, a position of it not hijacking us. Now, when my child toddled toward the road, my alarm, right, it instantly, right, Sophia! Right. Right. I'm I'm not like, yoo-hoo. Yeah, you're not just rolling along trying (laughs) I will grab her by anything as I see the truck coming. So I am alarmed. In turn, my alarm alarms her. Right. Right. Hey, Sophia. She turns around. The eyes get big. Come over here. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's the system working as it should. Now, so like, because parents, uh, you know, they'll have two kids fighting and the parents like, hey, guys, guys, hey, can we, right? (laughs) <laughs> and I actually have to coach parents to be like, knock it off. Like, no, you, I love what you say about that. You, you have it like, you have a chapter talking about what do I do when my kids are fighting? And you say very simply, you have to tell them to stop it. You loudly. have to tell them to stop it like, loudly. Like, yeah. Get in there. It is not okay. But we're like, well, how do you feel about, I mean, right. I was just like dying let's laughing. Like, this. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> let's unpack this. Right. Now, so we have these working alarm systems that if we don't abuse them, help us. So now, so back in the day, a kid used to go towards something, the parent would grab the kid, whack on the bottom. Okay. Boom. Smack. What that was meant to do was correlate the smack toward going toward the hot oven. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is that problematic? I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't call it abusive. I don't know if it had deep psychological wounds or not. But then what happens is I don't like how you talk to me. Whack. I don't Mm. like this. Whack. I told, already told you no. Whack. Now, so now what we're doing is we are abusing our alarm cycles. And what happens is when you abuse that, the kid's alarm cycle shuts down. They no longer respond to their natural alarm, which is why kids either who are chronically hit or shamed either become angrier and explode or become depressed and go within because they cannot handle their own alarm. So we all have it 
as parents, that look you give your parent and your kid when they've pushed it. My mother had this look to the T. It was the look, <laughs> right? Like one more step yeah. or one more comment and that's it. Right? Yeah. And every parent should have that look. It's the, it's the alarm. It's that I'm not screwing around. There's going about to be a problem, right? Right. If we, There's about to be, go right, ahead. We, if we chronically abuse that, it's the, it's, we lose our ability to parent the child effectively. We're also creating this dynamic where they are just told they need to be completely submissive to us, even if they don't inherently agree with what we're saying. So like, I don't like the way you're speaking to me. Well, I was speaking to you that way because I'm angry with you. I don't care how you feel. I mean, that's what we're saying. Yes. Yes. What, how you feel is not welcome here. Right. Exactly. And I mean, we can even get into how kids are not allowed to have bad days. Right. Right. Like any of it, any of it, but it's really important to take stock because for some parents, they don't use any alarm. There's, there's no like, Hey, knock it off. But Mm -hmm. to be a parent is to have and wield the power with love and boundaries. I love that. To be a parent is to have and wield the power with love and boundaries. So there's supposed to be power. We're supposed to be in charge. We have, but we do it lovingly and logically. If we don't have compassion and we don't have boundaries, then we are ineffective. We are the gardeners. The children are the seeds. If, If we don't grow that plant, with both boundaries and compassion, what are we doing? We're not our child's are, friend. We're not, their, well, we're not their therapist, right? We're not um, meant to be their equal because why would nature set up a system where we wouldn't have the power? It doesn't make any sense, but we're sort of starting to believe that. I mean, there's so many schools of thought that we are, equals. And, and I, I, I like the way that you put it just very bluntly, that you are meant to be in charge and the way that you wield that power is important. And you know how you just have to remember. And if you don't know how it's data. So it's data for some parents. And I kind of say this over and over in the book, if you were given too much power as a child, insecure power, or had it stripped away, your understanding of the world and how to parent could be deeply skewed. Deeply, right? So, you know, the the literature is strong. If you were raised by an alcoholic, it's very schizophrenic feeling, right? That, That parent is, it can become enraged and large and huge, and then they can become tearful and sad and begging, and, and you ch- never know what to expect. And the child is yo-yoed up and down on the power scale. That skews how that parent is going to take care of their own children unless a lot of work has been done. And it's Absolutely. Be highly threatening. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a funny thing. Power is a loaded word um, in America. 
um, we're obsessed with independence. Uh, we're not obsessed with interconnectedness. Um, and we're not, no, we don't seem to like that very much because it makes people feel like they're dependent. That's right. And they bristle against the idea of the hierarchy. But once I explain it to them as in the natural world, just the beauty and integration of the natural world, then it strips it of its negative connotations. Because yeah. if you look at mother lions, mother elephants, father elephants, mostly mothers and, and mammals, but if you look at the parents, there is a hierarchy because there must be. Because how there else, must be. How else there can you bring be. that little one into maturity? There must be. I I love I love what you say about speaking of maturity. Um that when it comes to screens, oh, yeah. I'm thinking about boundaries here, right? Boundaries around screens. Um, you say quite simply that whatever we are looking at is what's getting our attention and it's absolutely affecting our parenting. So if you were telling yourself that the fact that you're on your phone all the time when you're with your kid isn't affecting your parenting, it is. Um, and I was wondering if you thought, you know, from your observations that parents on the whole are more irritable or more nervous or more preoccupied since technology came into the picture. Because I think about my own parenting life. And I mean, if you got something you're working on on your phone, which is me quite often, mm -hmm. and then your child's also there, starts to feel like your child is distracting you from what you're supposed to be doing. So we forget that the child needs us and isn't a distraction from what we're supposed to be doing, but we're always on. It's, well, it, our lives aren't divided anymore. We're not sitting at our computer to get work done and then with our kids for the last couple hours of the day. You've identified the real problem. Sometimes our kids are distracting us from our real work because we're supposed to be doing that work, right? And so our right. resentment is toward the child when the resentment needs to be toward flimsy boundaries or overly rigid boundaries. But because the internet never shuts down, our email never shuts down, our notifications, the texts, um, and because we are behavioral animals, if you hear dings and chings and clings and how conditioned we are to check things, right? And how the internet and social media has trained us to check it without our consent. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I have so much empathy for parents right now. Um, oh, especially you are a very empathetic person. I really, t I, I totally gather that from you and I love it. I love your approach that you just like understand that parents are in such a weird, unprecedented, if I can't say that word enough time right now, because we have these devices and there's so much information and it's a lot. And my thing is like, I'm addicted to the lightning round of, and, um, words with friends and that is what I do to decompress, which I find interesting that I put myself in a highly stressful situation to decompress, but to decompress, yeah, that's totally, a whole nother totally. nervous system discussion. But, um, I, it takes a lot of conscious self-awareness to do this. 
I have, to, I've taken off all my social media on my phone and I've put it in my uh, screen time and it is locked behind a password that I don't know. Wow. Who knows it? My husband. <gasps> so he ha- he's the gatekeeper. He has to let you in. So how many, how much time does that mean you're spending on social media every day? 10 minutes. Whoa, 10 minutes. So I can control it from Hootsuite. Uh-huh. Um, which is what I do. Which is what you do. And when you're with your children, when it's designated children time, because right now so many of us are just with our children all the time. <laughs> but when it's their time, is your phone not with you? No. Oh, it's in my pocket. It's in your pocket, but it's not something that you have out. No. I'm inspired. I, um, I have never seen as many clients down going down anxiety and depression as I've seen right now. And, um, the news is so activating. Um, Oh yeah. It is so upsetting. And our kids are taking in all their energy. So all I'm doing with my clients is just challenging them in whatever small way to block themselves from constantly triggering our nervous system. I mean, we aren't meant to have our nervous system triggered this often, like to be exposed to even, I mean, there's a lot of theories that this certainly is not. Um, so there are a lot of, you know, people who say that things right now aren't necessarily so much worse than they've ever been in the last several decades, but we're just so aware of absolutely every terrible thing that's going on in the world at all times. I mean, we're not even biologically meant to be exposed to this much constant negative information. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And I'm at the a hundred percent. I agree with it. And I don't even you know, I have a whole chapter about like getting off of it to be better for your kids and all that. I don't even care about that anymore. You don't, you're worried about the parents. I'm worried about the parents. Yeah. I mean, I sit on my phone and I just, I'll check in with myself. And after like 20 minutes, my whole body is like buzzing. Yeah. I, if you're going to ignore your kids, which I fully support, (laughs) I I call it compassionate negligence. Uh Uh-huh. Sometimes it's needed. Read a book. Yeah. Read. I'm reading Jessica Simpson's memoir. It is. Oh, yes. Amazing. Open book. Yeah, it's an open book. It really is. It is an amazing book. There is an energetic difference between me reading that book and me scrolling. Oh, the paper, just like reading before I go to bed at night, like the paper book, not on an iPad, like not glaring into my screen. It is is different. Totally Um, different. And so I, because everything we do, you know, is the butterfly effect, everything we say, everything we put out in the world, everything we bring in, you know, if, if this time is so fraught, how can we make just this tiny little home of yours? not outside, like, not like that. Right. Right. Um, which isn't to say that there aren't tears shed about racial injustice, that we don't have deep feelings and activism and, 
And um, it's not that we shut down our emotions or shut down the news. It's that we shut down the pointlessness of scrolling. Well, I think about that all the time, like letting it begin with me, right? If I want my life and the life of my children to be so much different than the life that I am exposed to all the time through social media, I think it really begins with disconnecting from all of that and creating a completely different world for them where, while I can. And I mean, I, I watched the social dilemma recently. I've really been just reevaluating my relationship with social media and Um, it really just does begin like the biggest difference I think any of us can make starts with ourselves and our families and they might not be reading the news, but I'm bringing it with me. I mean, if I've just been sitting in my car reading it for an hour before I go inside their school to pick them up, it's with me. Oh, and our agitation. Yeah. You are scrolling and never as I've never seen like families divided like we are now. And you see your uncle post some like, crazy stuff on Facebook and you're in your head like what is wrong with him doesn't he understand this and then your kid's like mom I'm so hungry what what why are you bothering me we are pissed off about an ask for a mozzarella stick but we're yelling at the uncle oh that's so true oh my gosh how many times have I been there just like, wait, I really need to be doing this right now. And like, what is it that I really need to be doing? I just read like a really alarming email from a family member. I don't like at any point, I would not have had access to this email while I was trying to give you your breakfast. It's just now that that's the situation I'm in. We're totally lit. Like, I mean, it's constant. It's, and it's so much. And it, it's uh, again, whatever with the kids. I just want parents to, I have a a parent right now making a joy list, what brings her joy, and she cannot do it. She can't do what brings her joy. No, she doesn't have anything. You say that all children want to be guided by a strong and loving parent. This is something that I always think about in my parenting, that you're giving them a gift by setting boundaries. But you also say Um, that all children, even the most offensive and angry child wants to be good. They just don't know how that all children want ultimately to do the right thing. Can you elaborate on that? I mean, yeah. Sociopathology is really low. (laughs) Right. Right. So parents will legitimately call me and be like, I can't, I think my kids, even though we think our kids are sociopaths, it's actually quite unlikely that they actually are. It's really unlikely. Right. It's so unlikely also that healthy, loving parents just raise a sociopath. Right. Right. So your kid isn't actually a sociopath. They're just struggling with something. Um, I would really venture to say that a lot of what we see in young children, though, is the narcissistic behaviors we're afraid of, Mm. right? And so (sighs) adopting the idea that our kids want to be good for us changes how we parent them. That we're helping them do what they actually really want to be doing. And it also helps us. It's not personal. It's not personal. 
It's not. They're trying their best. They're trying their best. Right. As are we. And as you so well, as you so perfectly outline in your book that most of us really, we want to do well and we kind of know what to do. It's just that from the moment we're born, from the moment we're born, from the moment our children are born, you even reference this. The first thing we all kind of jump into is the sleep book, sleep training. We all want our kids to sleep through the night. There's a hundred books out there. They all have different methods for how to essentially accomplish the same thing. And this for me as a parent was kind of my first foray into not trusting my own intuition anymore because there were all these complicated methods on how to do something that I was basically being told I didn't have the skills to do on my own. I know. There was some sort of ethereal information that I had missed. I know. And that's step one. And it's It's the sleeping. It's so, so hard because, you know, and I say, it's not the sleep training that is necessarily the issue. It's, it's really just how does it mesh up with what you know and what you feel, right? Yeah, like, these are my biggest mistakes with my first daughter. I was so sleep deprived that I would have just done anything to have gotten her to sleep. And that almost immediately trans- translated into no longer trusting my intuition when I knew that she really genuinely needed something from me in the middle of the night and kind of doing whatever the book said. And it created just this huge confusion that only really in the last year I feel like I've been able to mend because I just completely lost that trust in myself because there was a book that was telling me something to do. And I mean, I hear parents all the time. They're just completely wrapped up, first-time parents usually, and like whatever the rules are, my kid needs to be on this schedule, nap starts at exactly this time. If I miss it, everything's going to be ruined. <laughs> it's like, that's where it starts. And I just want to say, oh my God, your kid is going to be okay. I promise. Well, and how unsatisfying is it that week after week in the Washington Post live chat, right? Every week people write to me like, I hear you shouldn't let a baby cry, a new baby cry, mm-hmm. but sometimes they need to cry. And, and when will I know? And how do I when write to them? Know? You'll know when you know. Yeah, you just know. Right. And, you know, like, how do I explain that to a parent? Like, how do you describe this deep connection of knowing? You can't, you can't, it's you just can't. An, it's a completely intuitive thing. And then like with the books come all this guilt. Oh my God, did I do the wrong thing? You lose that voice. And what I love so much about your book is that it brings parents back to that. For me, I mean, again, I said this in the beginning, I thought it was so validating and also just for the future for things I haven't really dealt with yet, like screens and all these other things when my kids are oh, older. Lord, yeah. Oh, I know it's like a, minefield, right? <laughs> I just try to like live one day at a time at this point, but it's, there's so, there's so much and, um, that we can really trust ourselves. And, you know, we talk about doing things by the book, like yours is really more of a book of really getting back in touch with that voice that you have. And also that our children are different. You've said that many times in your book and in this interview that every kid kind of needs something else. And, and we know our kids really well. 
And I say it over and over to my clients. I say it in the book, one kid's poison is another kid's medicine and vice versa. So true. Oh my gosh. A hundred percent. I have one. I mean, one of my children, if I let her stay up until like three hours past her bedtime, the next day would just be almost an entire wash um, because she would so be so cranky. The other one, it's fine. She'll just sleep a little extra in the morning and it doesn't matter. Um, one of them really, really, really needs structure. The other one really, really doesn't. So, I mean, if we were going <laughs> to do the same thing with both of them, it wouldn't make any sense. There's no, no one size fits all solution for parenting. And I love, I love how well you articulate that. I love your book, Megan. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Megan's book is called Parenting Outside the Lines. It's now available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You can also follow her on Instagram, which she's only on 10 minutes a day. So you better snag her (laughs) while she can see you. She's at ML Parenting Coach. Uh, Megan, again, thank you for joining me. And thank you all for listening. I am Laura Max Rose, and you've been listening to Look Ma No Hands. I look forward to joining you again next week. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Look Ma No Hands. I'm Laura Max Rose, and you can follow me on Instagram at Laura Max Rose to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and the behind the scenes of my life with my own two daughters. If you like this episode and are enjoying Look Ma No Hands, the best way you can help me spread the word is to leave a review on Apple Podcast. This is the single best way to help me reach a larger audience and share these conversations with everyone who needs to hear them. If you love something you just heard, you can also take a screenshot of the episode and share it on social media. There might be someone you know who needs to hear what you just heard, and that's another great way to make sure they do. Thank you for joining me every week. I'm grateful for each and every one of you. More next time. Mama, 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 mama.